Let me just say this at the outset. Today's message is really kind of laying the groundwork for next week. It's kind of a two-parter. Not kind of. It is. It's a two-parter. Uh, so you have to come back next week, all right? There's no excuse. I know it's Memorial Day weekend, um, but, but today I, I'm going to kind of go into teaching mode for a little bit and lay the foundation for what I believe to be a very, very important truth for us as a church, but also as believers. We've been talking about the blessed benefits that are available to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the benefit package of our new life in Christ we've been talking about since Easter. It's possible, why? Because of the greatest day in history, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've looked at these things so far over the last several weeks. We've discovered how because of the resurrection, we've gone from guilty, unrighteous sinners to not guilty, righteous children of God all because of the resurrection of Jesus and because our, of our faith and trust in him, our legal status has changed. Number two, we've gone from being enemies of God to being friends of God. Our relational status has changed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We learned just a few weeks ago that, that our access to God, it used to be limited. You read through the Old Testament and, and there were prophets that, that had certain access to God, but others that had to be at a distance. But now, because of the resurrection of Jesus, you and I have immediate and ongoing access into the presence of God. And what a beautiful thing that is. We can come boldly into his throne room. We can receive grace and mercy at any moment in time of day to help us in our time of need. And I'm thankful that we serve a God who doesn't check in or clock in at eight and clock out uh, at 4 p.m. and then rest for the rest of the day. He is always available. And that's one of the beautiful benefits of our new life in Christ. And then we looked at last week, how before the resurrection, before our faith in Jesus Christ, we are hopeless human beings. Uh, we have a lot of human hopes here on earth, but they're always filled with doubt. But when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Christian hope, it is certain. We can go to the bank on it and we become hope-filled believers. We're looking forward to that day when we will spend eternity in God's presence, when there will be no more tears, no more disease, no more sickness, uh, certainly those things exist now, but as believers, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that is a hope that we can go to the bank on because it's based on God's word and his word is true. But that's not all. There's more. This new life also offers us something that's very, very important or someone, I should say, that's very, very important. This new life offers us a helper, a helper being the Holy Spirit's. I want to talk about this for the next two weeks. Today, again, really just laying the framework for exploring at a deeper level the help that the Holy Spirit offers. But I want you, first of all, to know this, and I don't have time to get into uh, really the theology of this, but I want you to know, first of all, that in order for the Holy Spirit to even come in the first place, Jesus had to ascend. And I just want to say for just a moment, there are, maybe you don't know these individuals, but there are people even in Christian circles that, that try to undermine very key, very critical doctrines of, of the Christian faith. And one of those is the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension, when, when he ascends into heaven, when he sit, is now sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding and he's praying for us is such a key doctrine of our faith. And the ascension is, is crucial. Not only is the resurrection important, 
But his ascending into the heavens is very, very key and critical because Jesus said himself, in order for me to send an advocate, in order for me to send the, to send the comforter, I must return to my Father in heaven. And so it becomes very, very key and crucial that we don't undermine or say, well, the ascension, not that big a deal. Yes, it's a big deal. It's a big deal because when Jesus ascends, he then sends his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and our lives and allows our witness to become more faithful so we can do the ministry that God has called us to. Jesus said himself, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. I'm certain the disciples who have been walking with Jesus so intimately are probably thinking, how in the world, Jesus, is it better for you to leave? How is that even possible? Well, they would realize it on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and fills their hearts and lives. This is why the ascension is vital to our Christian faith. Several factors, though, need to be explored before we really unpack. And this is what I I want to do today, but more so next week, is I want to begin to unpack What kind of help does the Holy Spirit really offer you and me as believers? But to do so, I really need to talk about this doctrine or this this understanding of the Holy Spirit. Who is he and, and how do we receive the Holy Spirit? So I want to begin by just simply talking about this doctrine in general. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, whether you know it or not, has been, and maybe at some level still today, has been neglected for centuries. And it's a doctrine that cannot just be placed under the rug and say, well, it's not that important. I believe in Jesus, and, and that's great. Yes, that's good, but there is so much, um, so much truth, so much importance to understanding who the Holy Spirit is and his role in our life in order to make certain that we are uh, following him faithfully. It's the overlooked and forgotten doctrine. Let me just kind of show you uh, how it's developed over the years. The first Christians... When I talk about the first Christians, I'm talking about who we see in the book of Acts. The first Christians, they placed great emphasis on the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to walk you through all of Acts, but but you will see that they were, first of all, instructed by Jesus himself to do what? To wait for the promise of the Father. And so they're in the upper room, they're praying, and they're waiting for the promise of the Father to come in Acts chapter 1. And then in Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit then comes upon those that are in the upper room. Peter preaches this incredible sermon. 3,000 people are saved that day, and the church is birthed with the coming of the Holy Spirit. We know that these early Christians, these disciples, they had a deep dependence on the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Everywhere they went, they relied deeply and passionately upon the work of the Spirit in their heart and in their life. Many often refer to the book of Acts not as the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. If you read through Acts, you will see that it's not really the apostles or the disciples that are, that are effective in doing ministry. It's the Holy Spirit working through them that is bringing about growth in the church. It's bringing about transformation. We see that it's the work of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the apostles that we see miracles happen. We see the church continue to grow, that we see salvations take place. These first Christians, they were deeply dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. And just as a sidebar this morning, you know, as I pray for our church, as I pray for all of you, one of the things that I, I, I want to make certain that I do is, is when I pray, 
I want to ask God, God, give me such an incredible, huge vision for this church, for this community, for these people that is so large, so big that it cannot be accomplished through my own power. Because if it can be, then there's a good chance I'm going to rely on my own skill set, on my own, on my own giftings, and less on the power of the Holy Spirit in me. And so I want to have a vision that is so big, that is so large, that when I come to the table, I say there is no possible way this can be completed or fulfilled unless I depend and rely on the Holy Spirit. And I would encourage you when you pray, Lord, that you would pray the same way. God, give me a vision for my family. Give me, give me a heart for this community that is so large that, that may seem impossible from a human perspective, but when I start relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, I realize that for God, nothing is impossible. And, and you come to the place where you say, God, I need you to intervene. Unless you intervene, this isn't going to happen. And that is a great place to be at. But I, I, I want to make certain that I don't get to a spot where you know, sometimes it's very easy from a human perspective to, to maybe set goals or to have a vision that, okay, we can accomplish. This is something we can accomplish. That, that's great, but if I can accomplish it through my own strength or my own skill set without depending on the Holy Spirit, then I would step back and say maybe the vision needs to be larger. We serve a big God who is able to do big things. First Christians, they had great emphasis on the Holy Spirit, but we see into just really the first couple of centuries that that dependence begins to fade. The early centuries of the Christian era seemed to lose their focus on God, the Holy Spirit, but why? Let me just, whether you care or not, I'm gonna tell you um, why I believe this is, this is the case. Number one, there was this intense focus in the first few centuries the third and fourth centuries, on defending the doctrine of the Son, Jesus Christ. So much so that, and this is how it often works, when, when something is neglected, what we often do is we, we swing the pendulum the other direction and focus so much on this, but then this over here that used to be neglect, or that used to be focused on is now neglected, and that's sort of what happens here. We get into the first few centuries of Christianity, and all of a sudden, the, the doctrine of the Son Jesus Christ is under severe attack. The deity of Jesus Christ, that he was fully God and his humanity, that he was fully human uh, in the first few centuries, the third and fourth centuries, was starting to be under attack. There were these, these philosophies, Gnosticism and Marcionism that started to make their way, even in the second century, into the life of the church, where people were saying, well, Jesus, he, he wasn't really fully God. He was just a spirit, and he didn't really resurrect. And, and Marcion was a guy that was like, I'm just going to ignore all of the Old Testament because the Old Testament God is clearly different from the New Testament. And so in the first few centuries, there's this new Christian faith, and all of a sudden, there's, there are these attacks on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, so what happens is all of their focus now is centered on defending the doctrine of the Son, rightfully so, because it was under attack, and, and they needed to make certain that they were clear on what they as a church believed in when it came to Jesus Christ. These attacks would lead to, in the first few centuries, they led to church councils, business meetings, where they would settle these matters and oftentimes they would come out of these councils after much debate and arguing and discerning and trying to get clear direction from God. They would come out of these councils and oftentimes they would produce doctrinal creeds. 
that provided structure to the Christian faith. One of the creeds is referred to as the Apostles' Creed, another the Nicene Creed in the first few centuries, and I think we have it up on the screen. I'm not going to um, read all of it to you. I'm just going to give you a taste of it. You can look it up. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. You can click to the next screen. Uh, we God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Go ahead and click to the next screen. Um, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Uh, he ascended to heaven. See, that's key. That's important. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. You can click to the next one. Uh, his kingdom will never end, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Click to the next one. Uh, we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church, affirm one baptism. That we look forward to the resurrection of the dead. Amen. Uh, I'm not preaching on the Nicene Creed this morning, but what I want you to see is out of these councils, because the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the Son, was under attack, it became very critical for these believers to develop a creed, to develop what, what really, to try to understand what do we believe about the Father? What do we really believe about the Son? And what do we really believe about the Holy Spirit? And so they developed these creeds, and these creeds really became their, their basis of theology for the next several centuries. The whole Christian faith rested, at least in these early centuries, on getting it right, though, when it came to Jesus. Because if you deny his deity or deny his humanity, all of a sudden we're in a very difficult place because Jesus, we affirm, Jesus was fully God and he is fully human. He wasn't 50% God and 50% human. He is 100% both. And so that's why these creeds then developed. That's one of the reasons, though, that the, the attack on the doctrine of the Son was one of the reasons why there was a neglect then of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, second reason why I think there is this neglect of the Holy Spirit is there are extreme, unfortunately, extreme exaggerations. There are abuses and misconceptions. And all of those things have led many to shy away from the doctrine altogether. That's the case with anything. If there is an extreme exaggeration, if there is an abuse of something, what we often do, rather than trying to sort through it and discern what, what does Scripture say, what is God teaching us, what we often do is just, you know what, we'll leave that over here and we'll just ignore it altogether and we'll come over here. That, that is our human tendency. And so this is, I believe, one of the reasons why there has been such a neglect on the Holy Spirit because of exaggerations, abuses, and, and they exist anywhere and everywhere, and even misconceptions, and so we just kind of shy away from it. Well, we just won't really talk about it then because of all of these things. It's created fear. Some are now confused over the doctrine. Some have developed even false teachings because of it. And these matters have led many to neglect the doctrine altogether. What's very interesting, if you were to ever open up a hymn book, uh, you would see that there's very little attention given, uh, even in the hymns, to the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying there's no attention given, but, but certainly the Father, certainly the Son. But again, even in, in the hymn books, we see that there is a very little or small focus given to the Holy Spirit. This loss of focus on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit can be extremely harmful to our walk with God. It can lead us to develop or lead us really to an underdeveloped or incomplete biblical understanding. It can make us more susceptible to false teachings even inside the church. 
can dampen our spiritual growth because we'll talk next week about how important the Holy Spirit is in our spiritual walk and how he helps us to, to um, live faithfully and obediently and, and really to have victory over sin in our life. And so if we neglect it, it can dampen our walk with him, it can hinder us from effectively and obediently carrying out God's mission. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to embolden our witness, but if we neglect it altogether, how can we be faithful ambassadors for Jesus Christ and we can miss out altogether on the great benefit of the Holy Spirit as our helper, which we'll really look at more next week. Thomas Holcraft said this, he, the Holy Spirit, fulfills an essential role in every genuine Christian experience and is therefore so much more than an abstract object of theology apart from the third person of the Godhead. No one can truly know God. And so it's gonna be very key that we understand who is the Holy Spirit. So here's the question I want us to wrestle with. And I'm gonna talk, I'm already talking fast, but I might talk a little bit faster. Um, everybody's still with me. Amen, okay. All right, don't go to sleep on me just yet, all right? So how do we turn the tide? How can we experience the fullness of this blessed benefit, the help of the Holy Spirit, which has been made available to those who have been justified? Here's what we need to do. We need to know who the Holy Spirit is. We need to know how do we receive him. And we need to talk about and understand why do we need him in the first place. Today, I'm really just gonna focus on the who. Who is the Holy Spirit? Next week, we'll talk more about how do we receive him and more practically, why do we need him? I want you just to tune in just for a few more moments this morning. Who is the Holy Spirit? Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. I, I actually shared some of this. I've tweaked it, but I shared some of this probably a year ago. Um, so many of you probably would not have been with us at the time, but I, I, I talked about who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. What is meant by person? Because we all have, I think, different concepts. When we throw the word person out, I think there's probably different things that come to mind. Some of you are probably thinking about the person to your left or to your right. It's not really how we understand person today. It's not Tom, Sally, or Harry, or um, you know, some individual person. The Latin word is actually persona. The Latin word actually means a mask that is worn by an actor on stage. Here's what I want you to see. It's not inside the Godhead, inside the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not a mask that is worn to hide who God is, but instead to reveal the true character of who he is. Three personal disclosures of God. God is one who reveals himself in three very distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit has a distinct personality and the scriptures really confirm his personhood. And I'm gonna give this part to you quickly. Um, if you want my notes later, actually, I think they're emailed to you anyways. Um, so you can, you can see this, but I'm gonna walk through several scriptures for you to see this morning how the Holy Spirit indeed has a very distinct personality and how the scriptures actually confirm his personhood. Number one, there are personal masculine pronouns that are used to refer to the Holy Spirit. Look in John chapter 16, verses seven through eight. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send who? Him to you. And when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness. He doesn't say when it comes. He says when he comes. He is a person. The person is the Holy Spirit. Number two, the Holy Spirit is identified with the Father and the Son. 
which indicates then that there is a personality involved. We see this in the baptismal formula in Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and who? The Holy Spirit. Doesn't say Father, Son, and, and it, or some spiritual being that, that's just out there that we can't really know. No, he says Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also see it in the benediction formula in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of who? The Holy Spirit be with you all. We also know the Holy Spirit identifies with us, Christians. We have, I think, we have personalities, right? Uh, We do in this room, and he identifies with us, indicating he is a person. Listen, Acts 15, 28, for it seemed good to who? The Holy Spirit and to us. So he's identifying with us, Christians who have personality. He identifies with us. Number four, personal qualities are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit has knowledge. Listen, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit, and no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirits. Personal qualities are ascribed to him. He has a sovereign will. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. It is the one and only spirit who distributes all of these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. Not some just spiritual being out in the air that's gonna decide which gifts to distribute to believers. No, he, the Holy Spirit, he has a sovereign will and he decides which gifts each person should have. The Holy Spirit, he loves. Look at our verse today, Romans 5, verse five, and this hope will not lead us to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to do what? To fill our hearts with his love. We're gonna talk more about that next week. Holy Spirit is not an intangible, impersonal being. He can be known, and he can be known in a personal way. That should bring great joy to our hearts this morning. It's not that we can know the Father and know the Son, but not know the Holy Spirit. That is not the case. The Holy Spirit can be known and can be known in a personal way. He makes one holy. 2 Thessalonians talks about how the Spirit makes you holy through our belief in the truth. The Holy Spirit reveals things. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, God revealed things by his Spirit. We also know the Spirit puts to death the sinful deeds. By the power of the Spirit, he put to death deeds of our sinful nature. Holy Spirit is the subject of several verbs that demand personal agents. The Spirit teaches, the Spirit dwells, he searches, he gives life, and he intercedes. The Holy Spirit prays for us with groans when we do not know how to pray. How many are thankful for that? So he intercedes, he helps us to pray. He is a personal being that can be known. The Holy Spirit is also assigned an office or a task as a personal comforter or an advocate. Comforter, somebody that is a person, somebody that is real, not somebody that's some just spiritual being out here. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. And how many are thankful for the comfort and the advocate of the Holy Spirit? Amen. Holy Spirit takes the place of Jesus when he ascends. Jesus says, I have to go. And in order for me to send you an advocate, a comforter, someone to be with you in your grief and your pain and your joys and your hardships. In order for that person to come, not thing, but in order for that person to come, I, Jesus, must ascend. And when I ascend, I will then send you the Holy Spirit to be your comforter and your advocates. Holy Spirit is susceptible even to personal treatment. He can be lied to. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to God, the Holy Spirit. 
One can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. One can insult the Holy Spirit. He can even be grieved. And Paul says, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. So the Holy Spirit is, number one, he is a person. Everyone got that, right? Okay, number two, really number three, but number two, um, number three in my notes, but number two here this morning, the Holy Spirit, and this is key, this is really the last thing that I'll share with you this morning, and I'll give it to you quickly. The Holy Spirit is God. These, these, these two things, the Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit is God. They, we, we can't take one and, and, and trash the other. We can't say no to both. We take both. The Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit is indeed God. We sing the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy God, in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Blessed Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. Well, what is the Godhead? Also referred to as the Trinity. And let me just tell you this. I don't have time to really get into the depths of the Trinity. And even if I did, even if I gave you every analogy that's out there, we would still not truly fully know or grasp it because the Trinity is a mystery. At the end of the day, it's a mystery. God cannot be fully known yet. But we can certainly ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten and illuminate our mind to better understand. The Trinity is a mystery that's difficult for our finite minds to understand. If I were to tell you to describe or ask the the concept of eternity to me or space, certainly we can do it to a degree, but at the end of the day, our finite minds cannot fully grasp eternity, nor can we fully grasp God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here's what I want you to know. Number one, I'm not talking about three different gods. Don't walk out of this room and say, my pastor believes in three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, I don't. One God. One God. Scripture is clear in Deuteronomy. Um, we are to serve the Lord. The Lord our God is one, not three gods. If, if, if I told you this morning I believed in three gods, that's pluralism, and, and I certainly don't believe that. So I want you to first of all know that. Um, if you were asleep for a second, I want you to hear, I believe in one God. Everyone say one God. One God. Okay, we're all on the same page. Good. One God who manifests himself or reveals himself in three distinct but unified persons. God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What does this relationship within the Godhead look like? I've shared this before, Christian theology, and and I'm gonna give this to you and and at least something to chew on this morning and we can talk about it more later, but, but theology, Christian theology uses two words to really describe the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit inside this this Trinitarian unity that exists. First one is the ontological trinity. Everybody say ontological. (laughs) Yes, good, good. Referring to God's being and God's existence. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. Ontology is the study of being. When we talk about ontological trinity, we're referring to the fact that God is three in one. There are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who together are one being. Not three beings, not seven beings, not six. One being. The ontological structure of the trinity is Unity, that is key. The Godhead, listen, the Godhead is 
unified diversity. That is not an oxymoron this morning. That's part of the mystery of the Trinity. And I don't expect any of us to walk out of this room and to understand everything there is about the Trinity. But I hope we're starting to think about this relationship that exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unified. We believe strictly in one God, diverse. God is one, but he, singular, exists in three persons. And each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is God, yet distinct from the other persons. Let me just give you a quick example when we go to the creation story, Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter one, let me tell you the, the Hebrew word that is used for God is Elohim. Elohim is actually plural, but there are not three gods present at, at creation. Okay, Elohim is the plural word for God, but there's only one God, but all three distinct persons are active at creation. You have the word that spoke, that, that is spoken, uh, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit is hovering over the deep, um, and, and you have the Father, um, all three that are active in this creation narrative. But again, one God who reveals or manifests himself in three distinct persons. And the other were not just about his being, but the economic trinity refers to the specific roles within the Godhead. R.C. Sproul says this, when we speak of economic trinity, we're dealing with roles. We distinguish among the three persons of the Godhead in terms of what we call the economy of God. It is the Father who sends the Son into the world for our redemption. It is the son who acquires our redemption for us. We've talked about that now over the last several weeks. His work at Calvary and his resurrection, he acquired for you, for me, for all of humanity, our redemption. And then it is the spirit who does what? Who applies that redemption to us. We do not have three gods. We, R.C. Sproul says, we have one God and three persons and three persons are distinguished in terms of what they do. And then the scriptures, they provide strong evidence for the deity of the Holy Spirit. And let me just give these to you quickly. Number one, the scriptures, they connect the Holy Spirit to God. Scripture makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit indeed is God. Look at what in Acts 5, then Peter said, And Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied, listen, to the Holy Spirit. And you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but who? But to God. Now in verse three, Peter just said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to whom? The Holy Spirit. So Peter, even in these two verses, as he speaks to Ananias, he's connecting the Holy Spirit to God. It's because the Holy Spirit is God. Number two, the Holy Spirit is His name is coupled with the names of God. I already referred to the baptism formula. Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are definite godly attributes that are ascribed to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit is eternal. Hebrews 9, 14, the power of what? The eternal Spirit. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. What does that mean? He is everywhere. David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The implication is there is nowhere because he is everywhere. He is omnipotent. That means the spirit is all powerful. The Holy Spirit in Luke chapter one, verse 35, when the angel speaks about the coming birth of Jesus Christ and Mary says, how is this gonna happen? And and, and the angel replies, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of the most high God will come up on you and you will give birth to a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He, the Holy Spirit is all powerful and he is omniscient. That means he knows everything. First Corinthians two, the spirit searches out everything and reveals deep secrets of God. So these eternal, these godly attributes are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the implication is the Holy Spirit is God. 
He's not less than God. He's not some lesser being. He is indeed God. The Holy Spirit also does divine works. I already referred to creation. He was active at creation. The earth was formless and empty. The darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God, what was he doing? He was hovering over the surface of the waters. Job, even Job makes reference to the activity of the spirit at creation. Job 33 verse four says, for the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Spirit regenerates. John chapter three, Jesus talks, talks about being born again of what? Of the Spirit. Spirit is the one that regenerates, makes us new, brings us salvation, and the Spirit gives us eternal life. John six sixty three. the Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing and the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The Holy Spirit inspires. We have this word of God. Inspired by whom? Not by humans. Written by humans who were what? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Inspired by God himself. Therefore, giving us a revelation of who God is through his word. The Holy Spirit was also active even in the resurrection. Romans 8, 11, the spirit of God who did what? He raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says that spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. That's gonna be our jump off point next week when we start talking about the same spirit that is active in creation, the same spirit that is, that is active in, in regenerating and bringing eternal life, that is active in resurrecting Jesus Christ the Son, that same spirit for the justified believer, for the person who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they receive the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, Paul says, lives in you. One of the most beautiful benefits that we have as believers as justified believers, is we have the help of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not some intangible, impersonal being that we cannot know. Holy Spirit is God who lives inside of us when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is our advocate. He's our comforter. He convicts us of sin. He helps us to walk and have victory over sin in our life. We're going to look next week very practically, not only how we receive the Spirit, we're going to close this series talking about what kind of help does the Spirit truly offer us as believers. And I believe it's going to be a very powerful word. I wanted to lay the foundation this morning because before we even talk about the kind of help he offers, we need to know the person who is offering us the help. And that person, the Holy Spirit, he is God. He is deity, not some intangible, impersonal being. Would you stand with me this morning? The Holy Spirit, let me just really summarize for you, for us. This morning I talked quickly, but let me try to summarize everything that I said in three minutes. Number one, the Holy Spirit has been neglected for years. But it's time. Time is now to recapture the importance of this doctrine, the importance of the Holy Spirit. We can't take the approach of some and say, it's been abused. I don't understand it. 
I've seen incredible exaggeration. So you know what? I'm just going to leave it over here and I'm going to turn my back and ignore it. We cannot do that. Holy Spirit is too vital to ignore, to neglect. We need to recapture the importance of the Holy Spirit. It begins by knowing, first of all, who he is. He is God. For the justified believer, he lives in you, lives in me. And he offers us incredible help that we'll discover next week. Number two, the Holy Spirit is both God, deity, and a person, not an impersonal, intangible, or an invaluable. He's incredibly valuable. He is personal. We can know him. We can depend on him. I want to depend on him. I don't want to get to the point in my life where I say, I can do that on my own. I don't need anybody's help. I can accomplish this vision. Oh, that, that goal, that's within my reach. Those are the wrong words. If it's within my reach, then that goal's not big enough. Vision's not large enough. I want to be in a place. Just, you know, even as a quick sidebar, we had, um, last Wednesday, we were uh, meeting at Ben and Rachel's house for youth playing ping pong, playing pool, and it's one of our big nights. It's supposed to be wiffle ball, but the rain kept us from going outside yet again. But uh, I was talking with actually Sean and Rodney and a little bit of dreaming going on, a little bit of vision casting going on. We started you know, talking about you know, how great it would be and you know, we've got all of this land, this space, and certainly a need for a, a multi-purpose space where continue to, I mean, some of you know, we often, if anything we host, we tear down these chairs and we set these chairs back up. And certainly we've gotten good at that over the last two and a half years anyway. So no problem. But start thinking about that. Certainly the land's here. And I, I you know, as I was thinking and even considering that, it seems like, you know, an out of reach presently goal or vision. But that's the case. That's a good place to be in because... All I can say is there's no way humanly possible right now, presently, that that would be possible. But with God, it certainly is. It's on the table. That's, that's who I want to depend on. I don't want to say, well, I, don't, you know, I can't really do that. I don't have the skill set. I don't have the means to accomplish that. If that's the case, you know, remember that we serve a big God who is able to do big things. You might have... You might have a son or a daughter or somebody that's really far from God right now and you're looking at the situation, you're looking at them and you think, man, there is no way. They're so far gone. There is no way that they are going to return. Let me remind you, we serve a big God. I've said it before, no one is too far outside of God's reach. We may not be able to. The only thing we might be able to do is pray and pray hard and intercede, get others to pray, and that's what we should do. I want to just encourage you, if you look at a situation and you think, that's not possible, step back for a second. Remind yourself who you serve. Same spirit that raised Jesus Christ. Talk about impossible. Same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you lives in me, lives in every justified believer. Number three, the Holy Spirit is another blessed benefit afforded to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Our legal status changes. 
relational status changes, our access to God changes, our hope changes, and now we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are given a helper, an advocate, a comforter, and one of the most beautiful benefits you and I could ever receive. We receive God. Next week, we'll examine more closely and look at ways the Holy Spirit is our helper that will lead us to a place of greater dependence on Him. Would you close your eyes for just a moment?